At the risk of repeating ourselves, it's been reported that um, one in five COVID sufferers in New Zealand have long COVID symptoms. That suggests, if so, that of the 3,000-odd cases being reported a week and 1,300 reinfections in the past week, many people are not getting over or will not get over this virus anytime soon. Yale University's Dr. Lisa Sanders is trying to unravel the mysteries of long COVID. Lisa is a physician and internal medicine professor at Yale and a longtime New York Times medical columnist. She was the consultant for the TV program House. In fact, her work inspired that show. And more recently, she was front and centre in the Netflix series Diagnosis. Lisa's been called the Sherlock Holmes of medical diagnosis. Uh, we talked to her a fortnight ago. Uh, today she's back addressing the questions you have. Hello again, Lisa. Hello, hello. Is it morning? Good morning. It is morning, and thank you for coming back uh, with us. Uh, that's a that's great for us. Can we get the elephant out of the room before we proceed? Because I'm talking about COVID scepticism which maybe we should address, otherwise it keeps being mentioned. Um, well, it will be anyway. Observations from listeners like, how do you get a long version of something that doesn't actually exist? What you're describing is vaccine injury and a compromised immune system as a result of being injected with a literal bioweapon. Uh, has Dr. Lisa Sanders considered that long COVID is actually a reaction to the vaccine rather than long COVID, etc., etc.? Look, we know vaccines have side effects and after effects, Lisa. What do you say when people put the COVID skeptics view to you in the US? Well, of course, I believe the patients, I believe what the patient tells me. And if the patient tells me that they got their symptoms after they had COVID, well, I certainly believe them. And there are many patients who had long COVID well before the vaccine was invented. I mean, I am seeing patients who had COVID originally, like in March of 2020, some of the earliest ones, because of course, we know that the more serious your COVID infection is, the more likely you are to develop uh, long COVID. So the vaccine was not available until, you know, 10 months later. So all those people clearly got long COVID from COVID because there was no vaccine. I have seen people who have long COVID-like symptoms after getting the vaccine. That's that's a well-known, well-reported phenomenon, but it's much, much less. And when you think about all the people, at least in the United States, who got vaccinated, um, the rate of vaccine-related long COVID is minuscule because many more people got the vaccine than got COVID. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that there that people who don't believe in COVID aren't actually reading the information. More unvaccinated people have died from COVID than vaccinated people. Um, there were about 350,000. I mean, and we know that we know that vaccination uh, uh, reduces the likelihood of death. Um, you know, the the year that we didn't have a vaccine in the United States, our life expectancy dropped by 1.8 years. It's come back up because we have the vaccine. Amy asks your opinion, Lisa, about stress underpinning long COVID onset. 
Do you agree? There was, I think there was research out of Harvard suggesting this, that stressors may even be a stronger predictor of long COVID than physical comorbidities? Well, you know, stress and all these other things, you know, when you ask that question, it's, it's, it suggests that the mind is separate from the body. But stress is a kind of, uh, uh, takes its toll on the body just as diabetes. We, in fact, we call these things physical stressors. You know, so stress is an important component. You know, uh, um, one of the the research groups that I'm working with is is uh, doing some work looking at what they call allostatic load, like the load that our bodies carry. Um, and disease is part of that, but certainly stress and depression and uh, being undernourished, uh, not getting enough sleep, all those things are stresses. And of course, they make you uh, more susceptible to, z- to disease because your, your body is, uh, not fully resourced or is using resources in different ways, you know, in other ways. So, yeah, I'm sure that stress is an important component, but, but, but so are some, so are so many of the other diseases of the body. Yeah. Which makes entire sense. From Alan, Jim, Dr. Sanders estimated that between eight and 10% of people with COVID go on to develop the longer version. As you mentioned in your introduction to the interview, the estimated figure in New Zealand is 20%. I have seen UK data indicating 40% after one year, 20% after two years. And he sent a link to the British Medical Journal. What do you think about that? That there's such a wide variability in how many people get long COVID? You know, I think that some of that comes from the fact that we don't have any idea we don't have a we don't have a single definition for what long COVID is. We don't have a single test that tells us yes, we have you have long COVID. No, you don't. So I think it. I I think uh, it, I don't know what it means. You know, in the United States, I said eight to ten, but you know, if you look at estimates, it goes from eight to ten up to thirty percent. Uh, you know, of the U.S. population that had COVID developed long COVID. I I. I don't know which is the right number, but more seem to be lower. So I don't, I'm not sure whether that's a statistical bloop from a difference in the way people count or if there's something that's particularly bad for people in England and New Zealand that we don't have in the United States. I find that harder to believe, though. Okay. Uh, this is quite a long one. Morena Kwe, having had COVID for the first time two weeks ago, because of my age, 72, and having rheumatic heart damage, the GP stated I ought to take Paxlovid for five days. I followed this advice. The COVID experience was minor. A week after testing clear, though, I experienced the same chills. I thought I'd test again. I was positive. I researched the effects of taking antivirals and later recurrent evidence of the virus. Current research seems to indicate this recurrence is not caused by the Paxlovid. It seems logical to me that if one takes antivirals, the body's immunity is not given a chance to build up. What is the latest on this, please? Uh, Sue Lawrence in Whangarei. So, Lisa, if rebound symptoms, which may happen in 14% of people I was reading, are not a side effect of Paxlovid, can it be, as Sue suggests, because of a depletion of immunity in the body. I don't know 
Oh, I, you know, I wonder whether it's just uh, that perhaps five days is not enough for everybody. And I think it's what happens, you know, you take something, you're suppressing the virus, hoping to kill it all off. It's an interesting theory that because we haven't had time to really have a, or we haven't given our body a chance to do, uh, to have a immune response. But I think actually antivirals like antibiotics require the assistance of the immune system. So I don't really know what the answer is. I'm, I'm not sure that that answer is known. No, but it's an interesting question and your answer was interesting too. Uh, Jim, regarding the effects of long COVID, alarmingly, my hair fell out in great handfuls four months after having COVID-19. I didn't realise COVID had anything to do with it until I saw a homeopath, and she prescribed oat straw and horsetail herbs, which I drank as a tea infusion. Fortunately, my locks have regrown and are slowly thickening up again. Amanda, can you comment on hair loss as an effect? Well, actually, hair loss after an illness is common. It usually happens four to six months. I think it's called telogen effluvium. Um, and it's your hair is sort of shocked into, uh, and into it stops growing. Um, and so it comes out and it's not replaced. I mean, hair comes out all the time. What's different about telogen effluvium is that new hair isn't coming back right away. It's sort of shocked into silence for a while and then it gets its breath back you know got the wind knocked out of it so to speak and it gets its breath back and comes back and people grow their hair back and i'm not the tea sound interesting but i'm not sure they had much to do with your hair growing back no i'd never heard of the tea and it's in itself that was interesting i had a tapanui flu in the 1980s which you mentioned to dr sanders the professor who stepped in to help me looked at the blood of sufferers and found deformed blood platelets using an electron microscope. This made the blood thick and unable to pass through small capillaries. He told me that high-dose vitamin C reversed this. All the symptoms being described with long COVID are very familiar to me. Uh, The vitamin C solution. We hear a lot of talk for and against about this. What do you think? Actually, it's been studied. Um, there, there is a supplement called L-arginine, um, and uh, it's been shown that um, vitamin C uh, enhances the ability of L-arginine to do whatever it is that it does in its body that helps with long COVID. So they looked, they looked at L-arginine alone, and they looked at vitamin C alone, and they looked at them together. And vitamin C alone didn't do anything when compared to a placebo um, L-arginine did stuff, but the two of them together worked the best. So I think, you know, I mean, that's only one study. I'm sure there have been other studies that have looked at this. Uh, but I think that that suggests to me that vitamin C by itself is not enough. Now, of course, Linus Pauling back in, I guess, the 1960s thought that vitamin C could do just about anything. Um, he was very enthusiastic about it, and he was a brilliant guy. But none of that really hand out the way he thought it was. And so vitamin C's moment passed uh, back then. Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's useful to keep you from getting scurvy, but I'm not sure that it can fight off disease, okay. other diseases. All right. 
so often it's the combination of foods and um you know therapeutic things we ingest isn't it rather than one absolutely yeah. i mean i think that you know uh, chemicals come together in various ways and food is food is is just chemistry uh, and eating and digestion it's all just chemistry a question for your guest i had a cancer diagnosis last year and a partial mastectomy in february i developed COVID for the first time, I was totally exhausted and had three lumps off, uh, three weeks off work. Now I'm having inflammation problems, a lump on my collarbone and sternum and memory problems and fatigue, constant tiredness. Might this be long COVID? She asks. Um, how long ago did she have COVID? February this year. Okay. Well, first, I'm so sorry for your diagnosis, and yes. I'm so glad it was found and, and treated because, boy, that, that can be very scary. Um, I don't know about the lumps on your collarbone. Um, I would certainly make sure your doctor looked at those. Um, but certainly fatigue is a very common part of long COVID. So. I think that the WHO defines long COVID as starting after three months. So it's certainly been three months for you. And these symptoms sound very consistent with, or some of these symptoms, at least the fatigue, uh, seem very consistent with a post-infectious syndrome like long COVID. So I think that some of that for, is very likely to be long COVID. All right, good. I had quite a big mailbag come in about long... Well, I'll just use Barbara's email, but uh, Rose and a few other people. I've got a few names there. Long COVID seems to be very, simili uh, very similar to fibromyalgia. Can you ask Lisa if her research will finally help those of us with fibromyalgia? Thank you, Barbara. And the other emails echoed the fact of similarity and also, you know, not much information out there about all this. So what do you think? I mean, will will what you and your Yale colleagues and all the other brilliant researchers around the world investigating long COVID, will, it, will, they, will what they find out lead to new treatments that could really make a difference to the other kind of lingering diseases of exhaustion? I am very optimistic that what is found out about long COVID is gonna be helpful in so many ways. COVID is not the only disease that, that, that has lingering symptoms, um, the way we talked about the last time we spoke. So it ha it's true for a lot of different diseases, but COVID was broad enough and affected enough people that I think it has a lot of people interested. And so there are a lot of super smart researchers who are gonna do who are doing important research. And I think they're going to give us some answers that's going to help uh, people who have uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or people who have um, fibromyalgia. These, these syndromes that we don't understand well at all. And one of the reasons we don't understand them well at all is that we haven't researched them very deeply. Um, I don't I have theories about why that might be, but you know the fact is is that they haven't gotten a lot of research, and now they are, and so I'm very optimistic that we're going to get some answers from from the terrible toll that long COVID has made. Yes, yeah. 
And we love it when you say that. Dr. Lisa Sanders is with us answering your questions. You discussed inflammation with Dr. Sanders. This is from another doctor, I'm assuming. And she agreed that her patients talk about inflammation, but they are not carrying its markers. During and following the Spanish flu, an illness emerged that the general public called sleepy sickness and which doctors eventually called encephalitis lethargicus. And encephalitis is generalised brain inflammation. I have actually looked after patients with this condition. Isn't inflammation accurate then? Well, it's a good question. You know, and um, how interesting that you've taken care of these patients because I've only I've only read about them. Certainly, um, I'm not sure that we can. I don't know how good our measurement of inflammation is. I mean, we have a few blood tests, but it's only looking at inflammatory markers in the blood. Could there be inflammation in other places? For example, the the brain is sort of isolated from the rest of the from the rest of the circulation. Um, so if there was brain inflammation, would we see it always in, in the blood? I don't know. Um, if there's uh, inflammation in a certain part of the body, we think that we think that those inflammatory markers should be part of the circulation, but I don't know that we know. But I think it's really interesting that patients sense or feel that that what is happening to them is an inflammatory process. I'm not I'm not even sure what that actually feels like. I have to say personally, I haven't ever felt like something was inflamed. I mean, if something is red and swollen and hot, like, then maybe I can say it's inflamed. But these are people who don't have any visible signs of inflammation, but feel that. And, and I'm not sure exactly what it means, but enough people have said it and felt it then I'm sure there's something to it. I'm just not sure what it is. Yeah, I understand. Part of it may be just the feeling that things are flaring up in the body. You know, they, some of them may be constant, like tiredness and so on, but I imagine people have eruptions, you know, just... Things on, that come and go. Yeah, onsets of things that come and go, yeah. Um, has Yale, asks Linda, uh, looked into the relationship of the vagus nerve with long COVID, especially in relation to the feeling of inflation. Uh, the vagus nerve, which I know almost nothing about, has achieved sudden popularity. I do notice that. What might be the relationship here, do you think? Um, well, I think that there's, there's some evidence that the vagus nerve might be involved in some components. Um, I think the vagus nerve has a say in how fast your heart beats. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, what I, what I have observed and read about uh, COVID is that it has a tendency, it has a proclivity, it likes nerves. And so the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body. So I'm not surprised that uh, sometimes COVID affects the vagus nerve, but it affects a lot of other nerves too. I mean, we have a lot of people who have small fiber neuropathy, which is the very opposite of the vagus nerve. Instead of being the longest nerve in the body, they are among the shortest nerves in the body. But uh, I think that that just is a reflection of the fact that COVID goes a lot of places and does seem to do have some interest or some some preference for affecting nerves. I have seen 
people's interest in the vagus nerve. I'm just not sure that it's uh, it's the only one. I think it's one of many nerves that can be affected by long COVID. Someone else asks, is recalcitrant vertigo a long COVID sign? And actually, to go with that query, I know someone whose arthritis came back post-COVID uh, and vertigo, similarly, migraines, um, and the arthritis was after many years of having no arthritis. There must be some anecdotage around this because this kind of sounds like inflammation, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And especially, it, well, first, especially with the vertigo. You know, I see a lot of people with vertigo um, who have long COVID. And I, and I sort of think that somehow the eighth nerve, eighth cranial nerve, the nerve that uh, it goes through our ears, and helps us with balance and things like that. You know, maybe there's a peripheral neuropathy there, not a peripheral neuropathy. Maybe there's some sort of uh, nerve injury there. But one of the things that I've noticed with COVID, with long COVID, is that it has the ability, one of my patients pointed this out to me or said this to me, has the ability to take something that was annoying and turn it into a problem. So often you see people who have childhood asthma, suddenly their asthma is back. Or a, a man that I spoke to had sort of mild tinnitus, you know, that's sort of ringing in your ears. And after COVID, it was much, much worse. So I think that this is something that people see a lot, that something that was a small problem has been, has become a, a bigger problem. And I don't know that I have an answer for that. Understood. Look, you know, maybe we can prevail upon your good officers to have you come again, because I know there'll be another s slew of questions. But Richard, finally, this time round, asks, do we know what's going on inside the brains of these poor people? Aren't there major problems in the cells lining the blood vessels? Isn't there clotting? Surely that must give researchers strong clues about causation, he says. And I suppose... Adding to that, Lisa, I mean, does the brain fog resolve? Do the memory deficits disappear? Or are people saddled with diminished cognition for the rest of their lives? Well, certainly most people get better. Um, so we don't know what happens in the brain with brain fog. It doesn't show up on our MRIs. Um, so we have, we, I don't think that anybody knows exactly what causes brain fog. And, and there are lots of theories about what causes long COVID, but we don't have a lot of answers. My, uh, my colleague here at Yale, uh, Harlan Krumholtz, is exploring the possibility that long COVID is caused by uh, little pockets of live virus that didn't get killed by the immune system or by Paxlovid. Yeah. And so to investigate that, he's doing a double blind study looking at whether 15 days of Paxlovid helps people. And many people, I think, suspect that there are a lot of there are at least several different ways that long COVID comes into existence. I mean, for example, we know that some people who had COVID have injuries that uh, that don't that haven't resolved. You know, they have lung injuries that haven't resolved, or they have GI problems that haven't resolved. Um, that's one group of people. There are people who have clots. You know, uh, we know that. You know, it causes microclots. It causes regular clots. 
And so there's some people who have that. There's some people who seem to have their mitochondria affected in a bad way. So there, there are a lot of ways that COVID affects our body. And I don't know that there's any single unifying theory right now. We've made some progress, not nearly enough, but some. We're yeah. answering some questions, but so many more remain. I understand. Yeah, well, the progress, the optimism is, is what keeps, you know, you going and people with long COVID going as well, I know. Very good of you to give us your time again, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jim. It was great to talk to you again.